Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Economist Corner, a CETA podcast where leading economists break down the latest news and policy updates. I'm Jared Ball, Chief Economist of CETA, the Committee for Economic Development of Australia. Before we get started, I'd like you to take a few seconds to rate and subscribe to our podcasts. This means you get new episodes in your phone as soon as they go live. And rating our show helps others find it too. So thanks for doing that. Now into the show. COVID-19 is a uniquely global challenge. International cooperation has been crucial, but the nature of the crisis has enforced isolation and in some cases stoked nationalism. International supply chains are more important than ever, but they've also become a threat to our public health in many cases. With me to discuss COVID-19 in a global context are two London-based guests from Austrade, the Australian Government's International Trade and Investment Agency. And they are speaking to me on the first day of a new four-week lockdown for the United Kingdom. Peter Horn is Austrade's Senior Trade and Investment Commissioner and Head of UK, Europe, Russia and Israel. And Namali Mackay is Austrade's Senior Trade and Investment Advisor. Well, thank you both for joining me. Um, I guess start, starting at the at the top on this, it's been a it's been a really challenging year for for global trade. And nine months on from the initial outbreak, and now we've got more outbreaks, and we've obviously got lockdowns across the UK and Europe. And you're in your first day of lockdown there in in the UK. Just how do you think trade is holding up across the region regions, and and have supply chains in actual fact found a new equilibrium because it does feel like things have been remarkably resilient given how massive this disruption has been. Well, I think it's a great question. Um, it's absolutely been a seesaw in 2020. If you look at current estimates now, uh, the WTO now is forecasting a decline of trade this year of just over 9%, which is you know, absolutely a huge number and who would have thought that was possible. Um, but that forecast is actually much better than it was back in April. Back in April, they were expecting a decline of trade of about 13%. And if you look at what's happened between then and now, it, it has been a seesaw, as I said. Um, in June and July, markets actually came back quite strongly. There, there was significant growth in, in trade. Um, but as we look at it now, with much of Europe going into, uh, in the middle of the second wave, going into lockdown, we're actually seeing that start to contract again. Um, very, very difficult to know where that will end up, but you know maybe the best estimate is is that that in this year we're looking at a collapse in trade of about nine percent, and that's a global collapse. In Europe, it'll be ten percent or just a little bit more. Um, for Australia, it might be it might be significantly better than that. Uh, because of the nature of the structure of our exports. Um, in fact, our exports have held up. We're importing significantly less and we're continuing to export. And so we're actually running a very substantial trade surplus at the moment. In terms of the resilience, I mean, it's been remarkable to watch, uh, I guess, some of the adaptability and creativity in, in, in supply chains. But uh, by no, no means do I think we're settled at a new a new equilibrium or, or a new normal, um, there's still significant fragility and, and frankly, there's still 
supply chains that are broken, uh, that we're doing what we can to, to I guess, patch over and, and hopefully fix. Well, and as you say, you know, going into further lockdowns obviously creates considerable uncertainty as well. And so there is there is probably no new equilibrium as much as we would all like one. I guess turning to one of the potential silver linings or, or positives, an area that we would all expect uh, to see some acceleration in, in trade and investment would be around technology. Um, and normally you look at opportunities for Australian tech companies entering the UK and Ireland and, and you look at AI, cybersecurity, big data, all of these things which seem to be um, very emergent. How's trade looking in, in these areas and has COVID actually um, helped to accelerate trade in some of those things? Um, yes. Answer. Um, there's definitely a you know, a growing demand and has been with COVID for everything to be digital, contactless. And, um, and that's definitely also had an impact on, you know, the Australian, Australian tech sector and companies entering certainly the UK and Irish markets. And I think the thing is, what we've seen is that, you know, all kinds of tech products and applications may have had a sort of a status of being a nice to have, or it's been relegated to the R&D space. That's actually shifted into the sphere of kind of being essential to business operations during this pandemic. So the demand, you know, in demand and investment has definitely been very buoyant. And, um, you know, some of the examples, certainly in the UK, just taking, for example, virtual reality products and their applications. You know, we've seen this the world over, but in the UK especially, they've been deployed extensively through the pandemic in universities, schools, you know, cultural institutions, and um, even I'd say that, you know, the real estate and health sectors. So we've seen all kinds of examples where um, companies have employed virtual reality for, for example, training in heavy machinery and crane operation, driving and keeping their hours up and skills like that. So, and that that's, there's a lot of expertise in that in Australia that's, you know, come, come into the country. And um, I think also, you know, looking at the services sector, these are two areas where Australia and the UK both have very strong outputs and contributions to make. And one area in particular is fintech that, you know, has been very, very strong. And two years ago, we launched the um, Australia-UK Fintech Bridge, which supported hundreds of fintech companies from, you know, both countries to set up in the other country. And that certainly hasn't slowed down during the pandemic. Um, and I, I saw a recent report actually that, sh that said that um, something like, 88% of Australian fintechs are, are looking at expanding globally in the next 12 months despite the pandemic and um, their priority markets are, are very much in Europe. So um, it, I, I think the short answer is there, that that has not slowed. The pandemic hasn't slowed in that, that sector. And you have this incredible position where it's not just big issues in, in technology that you're looking at. You obviously have a lot of experience on the Brexit issue. 
and the transition period at the moment is scheduled to end on uh, January next year. Can you tell us what's happening uh, in terms of the transition process and how COVID-19 has affected that? And I guess where Australia is currently positioned to engage uh, post-Brexit. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if we just stop and look for a moment at the Brexit process itself, it's a very big ask of any country to kind of enter into a, what you would call a um, reverse trade deal of sorts. And, you know, it's with 27 other countries. It's not just one country. So it's a huge ask um, for the UK and Brexit. And on top of that, in less than a year, which is a record by any measure, you know, of um, trade negotiations. So what companies are dealing with is a whole new arrangement that's been very unsettling for the private sector in the UK. And um, and I guess it's, it's actually not the norm in trade negotiations. Normally, two countries are negotiating um, to add to a very stable base that they're coming from already. Now, in this case, they're actually dismantling the basis of their operation. So it's a massive adjustment for companies to, to move into that space. And, um, you know, what will it look like? Big unknown. Um, as, as recently as yesterday, the negotiations look to be very um, much at a stalemate. And there's an increasingly high risk that there, there might, may not be a deal or there might, you know, there might be a scrap of paper that comes out at the end of it um, labelled as a trade agreement, but it might be very thin. And um, that's often the case when you, when you do quick trade deals. So, so Brexit in and of itself is, is a huge challenge for the UK. And, you know, companies are looking at all kinds of things. They're looking at essentially friction at the border for their goods and services you know they whether it's australian companies or existing uk companies may have to set up a presence in the eu where they didn't before and um there's a raft of new regulations and trade protection measures that the eu uh, that the uk sorry has to actually set up internally so brexit is a is a massive challenge and then on top of that we when you put covid you know into the mix what what has been evident is that companies have been hugely hit the private sector has been massively impacted by that and now right now where we're standing covid is their number one issue that they're dealing with in you know they've been brexit proofing for a number of years but now COVID has well and truly taken over in terms of um, cash flow on operations, manufacturing capabilities have been really squeezed. And um, there's various demand and supply issues within the supply chain, as well as um, the lockdown. As, as you mentioned, Jared, we're in day one today in the UK of the second lockdown. And um, that's really ramped up the pressure on labor on labor and the ability for companies to to de employ and deploy labor the way they were before so the timing just couldn't be worse um for the uk brexit and covid the peaks are hitting exactly at the same time and and you know the, you asked the question where does that leave australia um well 
to be honest, Australia is actually very extremely well positioned to to trade with the UK, whether Brexit is happening or not. To be honest, I mean, Australia's got a well advanced trade deal in negotiation with the EU, um, and now. There's an FTA process that was launched in um, earlier this year with the UK. So Australia's, you know, a very well placed to, to to take on a trade relationship. It already has an excellent trade, um, a political and cultural relationship with the UK. And by going down this FTA route, it's really placing the trade relationship on par with the rest of, you know, the the special relationships. So the real focus now is to achieve a high-quality FTA and there's a lot of excellent outcomes that are being, you know, really pursued through that. So I think Australia's in a great position and I mentioned tech before. We've got a, a great digital chapter, um, leading one, you know, by world standards that is being proposed and Australia has a great resource of tech talent um, to, to draw on. So I think there's, there's a lot you could you could um, gain from that from Australia's point of view. And, and I guess just taking one of, the, one of the issues that sits within those trade deals and, and um, a question for you, Peter, climate change has emerged as an issue uh, on trade deals, whether it's with the UK, uh, Europe post-Brexit. How much of a hurdle do you think this will, will be for us? Um, I mean, to be frank with you, Jared, I see it more as a, an, an opportunity for greater collaboration rather than a, a hurdle. But, I mean, the premise is absolutely right. I mean, the EU, uh, throughout the negotiations in the past two years or so, has been absolutely focused on uh, the environment, sustainable economic development and, and climate change. And um, we, we've discussed that. You know, directly, and um, to be to be fair, it's actually not an issue. Um, Australia is committed to the Paris Accord. Uh, we've we've restated that commitment in other free trade agreements. Uh, we're absolutely happy uh, to do that again. Um, and then, when you look at it in very practical terms, um, I think it's it's actually very interesting to look at the current commercial engagement that we have. Uh, between Australia and the EU and also the UK on, on the relevant front. And there's a couple of things, I guess, that are just worth, worth noting, that at that commercial level, level that there's huge collaboration now on, on projects that are about uh, minimising uh, carbon emissions, minimising the impact of climate change. And there are great partnerships between Australia and the, the EU and the UK. Um, just earlier this year, French company uh, Neon actually announced that it was going to build the largest uh, solar farm in Australia, up in up in Queensland, which was a $500 million deal, by the way, 450 uh, megawatt investment, like just just huge. And then you look at the collaboration we have with the EU through with Germany, France, and other nations on hydrogen, battery technology. Um, that the practical commercial engagement is, is really significant. And so I think at, at a fundamental level, uh, the, the understanding is strong at the political level, the engagement strong, and to you know, reaffirm commitment through the apparatus of a free trade agreement um, 
is, is absolutely um, something that, that, that we're happy to, to work with our, our partners with. The UK in particular um, see themselves as playing a global role champion, champion action on, on climate change. And I guess, you know, they, they think that their ability to champion issues like this, uh, they see as a positive opportunity that comes with being an independent trading nation. And absolutely, I can understand why they, they pick up uh, issues like that and want to champion it and play that role on the global stage. And, and frankly, I, I, I think we uh, welcome that. Um, it's an ironic question in a way today, given that I think it was it was yesterday that the US formally left the Paris Agreement. And so depending on how the election result plays out in the US, either they'll stay outside of the Paris Agreement or, or Biden, if he's successful at becoming president, has said, well, within three months, we'll be back in the Paris Agreement. Um, so there's there's interesting global issues on that on that front in terms of climate change. Yeah, absolutely right, Peter. And um, but I think encouraging, as you say, to to think of it as a an opportunity rather than a hurdle. I guess the other the other kind of big issue in trade, particularly for Australia this year, has been uh, questions around our our overall dependence on China. And I guess I I think about that in in two respects. One in terms of uh, our reliance on uh, the Chinese market, but then secondly. You know, some uh, critique of Australia's kind of rather narrow economic output, and that we should be, you know, broadening the sectors that we that we rely on and increasing our economic complexity. Um, what's your perspective on that? Both, you know, firstly in terms of the markets that we play in, and and you know, how do we how do we kind of broaden out our trading relationships? But secondly. Uh, how do we also, at the same time, broaden out our industry base uh, that we trade in as well? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic question and it is incredibly important. Um, I think essentially it goes to the core purpose of Austrade. And Austrade is all about opening up new export markets for Australian business. I mean, that's one of the core reasons that Austrade exists. The other is to attract productive foreign direct investment. Um, so it's something that's always been a priority, but is it, is it more important now? Uh, well, the, the answer is probably yes. To be really clear, it's by no means do we want to export less to China, but absolutely do we want to expand our export markets and export more to other countries? Uh, absolutely, absolutely that uh, is the case. Um, if you look at Australia's positioning on that. Um, it's, it's already happening in many ways. If you look at the trade relationship with the UK, it's already incredibly strong. Europe's growing. The US is already a key market. Um, so redoubling effort is, is something that's important. Clearly, we're focused on resilience and supply chains and diversification of dependence is part of that. And you can look at some key segments. Now, it might be around critical minerals, as an example, um, where it, it's important for many nations to have security of supply. And so it actually creates opportunity for Australia as well in the role we can play helping other nations with, the, with their security of supply uh, issues through supply chains. 
And I, I was really encouraged with uh, the EU's new trade commissioner, Dabroskis. Uh, he actually highlighted the free trade agreement negotiations with Australia as a key opportunity to build supply chain resilience for the EU. And so it's something that we're absolutely focused on and working hard on, it's our core mission, uh, but it also creates opportunity for Australia, which we want to make sure we take advantage of as well. Very good answer, Peter. And I think, you know, the, the way that I always think about it is, is China and, um, you know, resources and um, there's not some kind of um, fake trade-off here between uh, these different, different things. So um, that's a really encouraging answer. I guess the, the other issue we've, you've touched on it briefly in relation to climate. Uh, obviously we've had the U S presidential election. Um, we're recording this a day after polls have closed. We, we look like we're getting closer to a result. Um, do you have any, any thoughts on how the outcome of this will affect Australian trade? Uh, well, I guess there's a couple of scenarios, right? So again, just, just to be clear, as we sit here now, uh, a day after, you know, day after election day, we don't know the result and it looks very close. Um, but I guess there's a couple of things that, that we, we keep front of mind. The first is that Australia's partnership with the US is, is absolutely sound and recognised on all sides of politics in both, both countries, frankly. Uh, Australia is an ally of substance for the US and you know, that, that means that we've got channels of communication and we can speak accordingly. So irrespective of the outcome, you know, that relationship remains intact. If you look at it um, in terms of economic impact, I mean, the US is, is Australia's largest source of foreign direct investment and, and a major trading partner. So what might be different under President Biden versus a President Trump? Um, one difference might be the look at, to look at the US's approach to international institutions and whether that's the WTO, uh, whether it's the rules-based uh, international order that we, we've come to know since the Second World War around, uh, around trade. Now, President Trump has been sceptical of those institutions. He has encouraged bilateral relations and I think it's fair to say that Australia as a, a middle-sized power, an open trading economy, that we absolutely see the value in those uh, international institutions. So President Biden uh, has flagged that he'll change the approach to those institutions and that could be a significant difference between uh, the, 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 what could happen in the next in the next four years, and so that's something we'll be be watching really closely. If you look what's happened in the world in recent years, um, with weakening of those global institutions, there has been growth in bilateral arrangements, and this is something that to some extent predated Trump. But Australia has been very active on that front, as an example. So Australia has been very active um, in generating creating free trade agreements generally to the point where now 70% of our trade is covered by free trade agreements and to some extent that helps us bypass, well not bypass, but work alongside our WTO arrangements. 
Uh, another area of difference might be around engagement in the Indo-Pacific area. And this is something that Australia absolutely is championing. Uh, but we've been really pleased the number of European nations uh, expanding their presence in the Indo-Pacific, uh, France and Germany uh, specifically. Um, and it would be interesting to see and watch the role that the US would plan to play um, in, in our region. But to come back to the core of it, the, the fundamental relationship between Australia and the US is, is strong, it's bipartisan in both nations, and would expect that very strong engagement to continue. In addition to what Peter said, it would, would be very interesting to see um, after this election what actually happens in terms of the the level of protectionism, trade protectionism that's going on in the world. It, I think it's fair to say the US has been um, fairly protectionist and there've been a lot of trade wars and tariffs being used as, you know, political instruments um, across the board and, and with China, you know, the relationship with China. So I think there's uh, that that has the potential to, to change um, or not is the question. And then, you know, Australia obviously as a, as a middle player will be impacted by that in some way as are lots of countries like the UK. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see how trade protectionism changes post US election. Well, normally you've, give, you've given me the perfect segue to my final question, which I'm, I'm going to ask both of you, but I'll start with you. Um, and we do, well, I do generally try to end my podcast on a positive note, but no pressure on your answer to this question. Um, we've obviously seen through COVID-19 has sort of reinforced some of those um, populist kind of nationalist sentiments and, and led some to criticise Australia's dependence on, on global trade altogether uh, and call for more economic self-reliance. What's your... Uh, as someone who negotiates free trade agreements, works through global trade and investment, how do you respond to that? Yeah, well, this is, you know, this has been the subject of great debate and real self-reflection for many countries um, through the COVID pandemic. And um, it's, it's led to a real sort of politicisation of the topic, you know, and looking, countries have been looking at are we too dependent on um, one particular country or a group of countries? And there's been this discussion about reshoring and reducing reliance on, you know, parts of the supply chain. Um, and I, I guess the thing to note is that reshoring and shortening supply chains doesn't always eliminate the supply chain risks. You know, you by, by bringing everything back to a domestic focus, you could also increase your exposure to domestic risks and domestic shocks and, and increase costs that way. So I really think, um, you know, to stick with your positivity, it's really more about having a balanced approach to, to find ways to encourage some kind of national self-sufficiency without cutting off global, tra uh, you know, markets and, and really without throwing our comparative advantages out the window. There's, there's got to be a middle path. And I think this is a process of realigning to find that, that path. Well, and I guess when you talk about self-reliance and, and adaptability as well, having 
you know, multiple global relationships for trade and investment uh, also helps with that. Um, perhaps, Peter, la- last word for you on this. What's your kind of, what's your current elevator pitch on, on free trade? No, thanks, Jared. I mean, I, I would say Australia in many ways is um, a poster boy for the benefits of, of open markets and free trade. If you look at Australia's economic success over the past 25 years, which is you know unparalleled in the, in the developed world, if you look at the Australian economy now, where one in five jobs comes from trade, one in ten jobs comes from foreign investment, um, and and again, like I was just looking today at, at the trade numbers in September for the month of September. Australia's trade surplus was $5.6 billion. Australia is a huge beneficiary of open markets, the ability to trade. Now, conversation and focus on supply chains, security of supply, is eminently sensible, eminently sensible, but that's not about onshoring for the sake of onshoring. It's about making sure you've got that resilience in your model. Um, Globalisation should lead to greater diversification, which is a benefit, but shouldn't lead to greater concentration. And where it has in ways that create risk, then absolutely we should look at that. But I think the the benefit to the well-being of of our citizens, not just in Australia but globally, that have come from the ability to trade freely, the the free mobility of capital, um, it, it is unquestioned. We wouldn't have the standard of living we have in Australia without the ability to trade. That's a great, great answer, Peter, and a great, a great place to end. Um, Peter and Namalee, thank you so much for all the work that you do in in promoting trade and investment uh, for Australia in the region. And um, I certainly, having come off the back of a long second lockdown here in Melbourne. I really do wish you all the best uh, there in in London and uh, I hope that uh, your lockdown goes quickly and, and the virus is contained there. Thanks, Jared. It's a pleasure. Thank Stay you. well. Thanks for listening in to The Economist Corner. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred platform. For more COVID-19 coverage, such as our blogs, reports and live streams, jump on the CEDA website, ceda.com.au. And finally, keep up to date with everything CEDA is doing in real time by following CEDA on social media. You'll even find me there too, and always happy to take people's questions and feedback. Please tune in next time, and until then, stay safe.